Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture begins and ends with a wedding. We have the first wedding in front of us in our text in Genesis chapter 2. And we read about, in Revelation, we read about the consummation of all things, the eternal wedding feast. Weddings are important in Scripture. Where did Jesus do his first miracle? How did he begin his ministry? It was with the miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Now those of you who are single, either those who are single for the moment or those who have been called by God to a life of singleness, don't tune out. Don't think to yourself, well, weddings. I'm just going to read the bulletin and wait till this is over. These weddings in the scripture are important for you too. You, single member of the church, you were born from the first wedding. Adam and Eve are your first parents. And you will participate fully in the second So pay attention to what God is telling you this morning in the first wedding. Let's remember what's happening in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the great big picture, the cosmic view of the entire universe being created by an almighty God for his glory as a temple in which he is to be worshipped. Then in chapter 2, the camera zooms in backs up a little bit to the sixth day and shows us an intimate scene in the garden. And you remember that the Holy Spirit causes Moses to begin using the double name for God that occurs in this zooming in. He now begins to refer to God as Yahweh God, Lord God. Reminding us that the almighty creator of heaven and earth is the loving, gracious father who makes covenants with us and relates to us intimately. And so we heard last week about the the glorious home that the Lord created and prepared for us to live in and, and worship him in and enjoy him in forever. And it it all seems really good and, and beautiful, but then there's, there's this shocking note that comes in in verse 18. We're still in the six days of creation here, where God makes things and then he says it's good, and he makes things and he says it's good. And all of a sudden in verse 18, he says, it is not good. That's a surprise. That's a shock. What's not good? Well, well, it's not good that man should be alone. But notice that he's not talking about man in general. Man can refer to humanity. But here it's referring to the man. It's not good that the man. So here the focus is on the man as a male. It's not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The man 
has everything that God has prepared. But he can't do his job. He can't fulfill his mandate to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful, to be multiplied, to fill the earth with image bearers of God. The man can't do what God has called him to do. And so God provides. Because when God calls, he equips. When God gives you an office, he gives you what you need to do the work of that office. And so God equips and provides. He provides, he will provide a helper fit for him. And children, you know who that is, right? We read about it. It's the woman who will be created from one of Adam's ribs. She's the helper. Now think about that word helper for a moment, because it's important to to read and understand that word in a scriptural way and not in a way which is in accord with our own imagination. Some people read this and say, oh, look at that. Now there's man and uh, God is going to make him a helper. Isn't that nice? Just like daddy's working on Saturday with his head under the kitchen sink doing the plumbing and fixing the drain and and the little two-year-old comes and says, Daddy, can I help? He says, yes, you, you can be Daddy's helper. Here, hand me that tool over there. Some people think that women are like that, that they, they get to help. Isn't that nice? That's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. On the contrary, there is no built-in inferiority in the word helper. It's important to note. In fact, this noun, because it's a noun, I will make him a helper, this noun, most of the times that it appears in Scripture, in the Hebrew Old Testament, it refers to God. And when God helps man, there's no built-in inferiority by any stretch of the imagination, is there? Let's just look at a few of the the texts in which this word comes back. And children, the word in Hebrew is ezer. Okay, that's the word for helper in our text. So pay attention and listen for that word ezer as we go through a few scriptures where it appears. Exodus 18 verse 4, Moses is naming his sons and he names the second son Eliezer. Did you hear it, children? For he said, the God of my father was my help. Eli, Eli, El is God. The little I stands for my, so Eli is my God. And Ezer is help. So Eliezer, my God, is help. When Samuel celebrates with the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 7 verse 12, the defeat of the Philistines, he took a stone, and a stone in Hebrew is Evan, or Eben, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Eben Ezer. Did you hear it, children? Eben, stone, Ezer, help, stone of help. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Psalm 20, verse 2, 
me, God sends you help from the sanctuary. Same word. Psalm 70, verse 5. I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help. Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help, my easer, come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And how did we begin our worship this morning? By confessing our dependence upon the Lord with the words of Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's the same word that we have in our text. So don't go reading this verse and thinking that there is built-in inferiority in the word helper. There is not. What kind of a helper will God make for man? A helper fit for him. Some of you are bilingual. You can remember the King James. You read the King James and you understand that old English. And you remember the King James says, I will make him a helper and helper meet for him. And help meet for him. And that's where we get the strange English word help meet. What does it mean? A helper that fits. The word means something like something over against, something opposite, something complementary with an E, not with an I. Complementary, something that fits together, that, that goes well together with. Now we know from Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that man, male and female, were created in the image of God. Both man and woman equally participate in humanity. Both man and woman, male and female, both equally reflect the image of God. They are image bearers. Together. They reflect God's glory and God's image. But they're not exactly the same. And that's so important. We live in a world, in a culture, in a society which keeps talking about diversity, but I do not think it knows what that word means. Because for the world, diversity is everybody being exactly the same, thinking the same, acting the same. But God's creation is a creation of unity in diversity. To get an idea of this word fit for him, the word fit, we can think of our hands. Usually, our hands are equal, they're the same, but they're also different, aren't they? Can you imagine if your left hand said, you know what, I want to be exactly like the right hand? Wouldn't that be strange? Because it wouldn't close inwards, it would close that way. I can't even show you. It would be very difficult, wouldn't it? It works well when our hands are the same, but opposite. We can do amazing things. I was watching a, a concert last night, and I saw the violinists with one hand doing one thing and the other hand doing another thing. And when we, when we use our hands as the same but different, then human beings can create glorious things, beautiful things.
So God will make him a helper fit for him. And then we, we get verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. He brings them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was is its name. What is man doing here? Man is fulfilling his office as a king. We, we, we heard about in the past weeks, man is put on the earth to be a king and to be a priest. And man is fulfilling his office as king, as sovereign. He's exercising dominion. That's what happens when he names things. That shows lordship over those things. He's subduing the earth. He's having dominion over it. Here is Adam the scientist. He's engaging in the work of taxonomy. He's he's describing creatures in different groups. And he's giving them names. Scientific endeavor. Did you notice that it says that he... That the Lord God brought to him every beast of the field, and Adam named those beasts of the field. Why am I calling attention to the beasts of the field? Well, there's one very special beast of the field that we're going to meet next week. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We haven't yet experienced the fall. Adam is still doing his job. And he is showing lordship and dominion over the, over the serpent as well. We'll find out the consequences next week of what happens when he doesn't keep doing that. So Adam is able to do some part of his mandate, isn't he? He's exercising the rights and responsibilities as king, as sovereign, as lord over the earth. He's doing some of that. But he can't do all of it. What can't he do? Well, he can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's something missing for that to happen. There was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found any creature which could help Adam to fully engage in his mandate received from God. And so we have not just the first scientific work in Adam's taxonomy, but we have the first surgery and the first general anesthetic happening in verse 21. God will make a helper fit for Adam. Now, the word rib, you might read in some commentaries or you might read in some Bibles, it can also actually mean side. And that's one possible translation. But rib is better because the Bible says he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So that seems to accord more with the other possible and legitimate translation, which is, which is rib. And what does the Lord do with that rib? He, he made it into a woman. The verb is strange. It's not the verb to create that is used in chapter 1. It's the word build. God built the rib into a woman. 
I chewed on this for a long time. Why is the Holy Spirit using this verb? And I don't, haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet, but one thing we can learn from it is that this is a process. God doesn't just speak and a woman pops out. But God is fashioning in a loving and intimate way as if with his own fingers he is making this final glorious piece of his creation, a daughter of God made in his image. Man, male or female, are not created like the animals. They're created in a special way by God. And then in verse 23, man breaks out into poetry. Adam the scientist now becomes Adam the poet. Now we already had music because you remember that Job tells us in uh, chapter 38 that the morning stars sang together, all the angels shouted for joy when God set the foundations of the world. There's lots of music and now there's poetry. Adam delights in seeing his beloved. And he speaks these words of chapter, 20, of chapter 2, verse 23. Now notice three times the Holy Spirit calls our attention to the profound unity between male and female, between husband and wife. When the Bible, when the Holy Spirit repeats something three times, it's important. What does the Bible say about God? He is holy. How many times, children? Holy, 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 right? That's what the hymn is, and that comes straight from the scriptures. So when the Bible says something three times, we pay attention. Here, he says, bone of my bones, that's one. Flesh of my flesh, that's two. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's three. There is a profound unity of the human race. And that's important for a whole pile of reasons. When the angels fell, how many of them fell? Well, we know that some of them did. And actually, we know them, that lots of them did, because the, 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 the devil has lots of demons at his command. But you also know that not all of them did, right? Because angels are individuals. They weren't all born from one original pair. So when some of them fall, others do not fall. But humanity is different. Humanity is connected. There's an old primary school reading book for children in 17th century New England. And it teaches the alphabet using little phrases from scripture. And for the letter A, it says, Adam, in Adam's fall... We sinned all. And that has profound implications for the doctrine, the scriptural doctrine teaching about the fall into sin and about redemption and the need for every man, woman, and child on this planet in all of history, the need for everyone to know and to believe and to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the perverse teachings of evolution which include saying that perhaps Adam and Eve were just a, a couple amongst a larger community of human-like creatures, runs into problems with the scriptural teaching about sin. 
and about the fall and about the work of Christ. Humanity is a unity. So there's unity between male and female. And yet there's a difference. There's that fit for him. Remember, it has the idea of complementarity, that, that, that one thing fits together with the other thing. Equal but different. Unity in diversity. And so we need to pay attention to some conclusions that the scripture would urge us onto here about the connection between men and women and their difference. Now, there's, there's a lot packed into this text. And, and it's hard to know where to stop because you can dig and dig and dig. And in this text, our, uh, in, in a seminal form, teachings which we get through the entire scriptures and that are fleshed out right through the Old Testament, right into, into the New Testament. It's kind of like looking at an acorn and, and, and you can kind of see inside it the future massive oak that it will become. So I have to, we have to control ourselves here and just stick to the words of our text. But everything that Scripture teaches us about men, women, and their roles is encapsulated here in our text. So it's good to pay attention to it and to treat it with respect and reverence. You see, there's a difference There's not only a profound equality as both being image bearers. There's not only a profound unity as one coming from the other. But there is also a profound difference. Man says she shall be called woman. Adam as king names his queen. And so there's a difference in position. There's a difference in precedence. The New Testament says Adam was created first and then Eve. That means something. That has consequences for who we are as husbands and wives and men and women. And one of the consequences is that godly women in the Old and the New Testament are subject to their husbands. They obey their husbands. If you say that, in a wedding, and there are people who are not believers, or actually even a lot of people that do confess Christ nowadays are very uncomfortable with that language, but it's, it's the Scripture's language. Sarah obeyed Abraham and was subject to him and called him Lord. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of what that means. But I just want to say this. Be careful not to interpret these things in the light of your ideas about men and women and about culture and about society. We need to interpret these things in the light of the Holy Scripture. And one beautiful picture that the Bible gives us for this profound unity between husband and wife, this profound complementarity where they fit together and go together, and also the profound difference of position and role That's all beautifully described in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul speaks about the husband as a head and the wife as a body. A head and a body are very different from each other. 
but they're equally important, aren't they? We can't do without our head, and we can't do without, without our body. They're mutually interdependent, and they are not mutually exchangeable, are they? And so in a biblical wedding, in a biblical marriage, there is the man and the woman, the head and the body. So what does a homosexual, homo means same, what does a same-sex marriage look like? Does it fit with reality the way God made it to be? And it doesn't, does it? A marriage of two men is like a person made up of two heads. Is that going to work? And a marriage of two women is like a person made up of only two bodies. Is that going to work? You see, our society loves to talk about diversity. But they actually reject true diversity. The way God made marriage to be is for unity to flourish in diversity in a most glorious way as male and female come together as husband and wife. It's important to emphasize here that a difference of role does not signify a difference of value. Our society will tell us that. If somebody has a a role that's different than mine, then they're more valuable than I am. And if I am just as valuable as they are, then I should be able to do what they're doing and have the position they have. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not how life works. Last night I was listening to a concert, and, and the first violinist gave the note to tune the orchestra. The first violinist has a role, an office, the first violinist is just as human as all the other people in the, in, the, in the orchestra. Not more valuable or less valuable. But he's got to do his job, or she's got to do her job. And if the whole orchestra says, well, I, I'm just as good as you are, I'm going to give the note to tune the orchestra. If every instrument gives the tuning note, there will be a cacophony. There won't be a beautiful harmony of music. On Fridays, some of the believers in this congregation get together to sing, and the director tells us which page to sing from, and what the tempo is, and how to sing, and when to stop, and when to start. The director is not more valuable a human than the people singing, but the director has a role and an office. And it's not going to work if the entire choir wants to sit at the front, stand at the front, all of them waving their arms and directing, and everyone deciding which page we're going to start on and where we're going to and how fast we're going to sing. And we come to verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Holy Spirit teaches us that there is a relationship which is stronger even than blood 
And that is the marriage relationship. The word here for hold fast is kind of, we could kind of almost translate it like the word glue, like stick to, like a glue. Man shall leave his father and his mother and, and become stuck, stuck fast to his wife. Think of two pieces of paper and you, you smother the one paper with, with glue and you, and you put the two papers together. There's still two papers, two sheets of paper, but they also create a unity, which if you try to divide after the glue is dried, is going to become very messy. Bits of the one will be stuck to the other. That's a, a biblical marriage. Without losing their individuality, male and female form a beautiful unity and diversity which reflects the very nature of God. The family is created to reflect the character and the glory of God. It is a place of love and life of two individuals maintaining their individuality but forming one unity which glorifies God. And this becomes even more glorious when God grants children whether by birth or by adoption, when the family has mother, father, and children. It's a glorious thing which reflects a little bit of the the truth of who God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Divorce or death is like tearing apart a body. It's like tearing the head off your body. It hurts. It's ugly. It's painful. It's wrong. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And so we have this beautiful, divinely appointed unity and diversity, which is family, man, woman, children. Humanity can fulfill its responsibilities now. They can minister to the creation. They can cultivate. They can develop each thing and each creature to to the maximum glory of God. They can guard the holiness of creation against any intrusion of disobedience or distrust. They can be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's done. We're at the end of the sixth day. And what does God say right after he created the woman? God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Little girls, pay attention. The final glorious flourish of creation is complete. As we go through the six days of creation, every step is more order and more glory, and the final perfecting touch which makes it so that everything is finally in place and everything can now work is the creation of the woman. So little girl, don't you judge your worth by how you might be put down by some or mistreated or if somebody says, well, you're just a girl. Don't listen to that. You are a daughter of God. And that is a glorious thing and a glorious privilege. Imagine a world without women. 
We can't, can we? There will be no children in this church. There would be no people in this church. There would be no life, no nurture, no love, no beauty, no delight in family and church and society. There would just be Adam. You know, the devil wants a world with no women. The devil hates women because it's through women that God fills the world with life. And the devil hates life. And you know what he tries to do? He tries to tell us that women are just men who happen to have uteruses. The devil works desperately to erase the glorious distinctions of who were we created to be. And through films and movies and books and magazines and through all kinds of stuff on the internet, the devil is telling you, daughter of God, that you should just be like a man. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Embrace who you are. It's a glorious privilege to be a daughter of God. It's a glorious thing. And men, we need to listen to the Scripture. What does the Scripture tell us? To give honor. Oh, yes, it tells us also that we need to, that our wives need to be subject to us, but that's the Scripture talking to them. Scripture says to us, men, we need to love them, respect them, honor them. Love and honor. We need to show our boys an example in that. That we will not tolerate mistreatment, disobedience, or the despising of our wives and our daughters. And so we come to the final verse. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now it's hard for us to imagine how can it be, how, how can people walk around with no clothes and how can they not be ashamed? What, what's, what's wrong? We, we just can't get our heads into that. It's difficult, isn't it? That's because we live in a broken and fallen world. But they were clothed in glory and honor. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and so we live in a world in which it's shameful and petty and vulgar. There's this twistedness to humanity that's fallen. We need to understand that before the fall, if we were to look at Adam and Eve before the fall, we would see a creature so bright and so glorious that we would be tempted, says C.S. Lewis, to fall down and worship. God made us, man and woman, as glorious kings and, and queens. Psalm 104 speaks about the Lord and says, You are clothed in splendor and majesty. You are wrapped in light as a garment. And Adam and Eve reflected that. They were clothed in splendor and majesty and glory and light reflected from God. And Adam and Eve reflected and participated in that life, in that light, in that glory. And the glory reached its peak in the formation of the first family, the first marriage, the first wedding. That first family unit, even before there were any children, that first family unit was complete and reflected God's glory. Adam and Eve could live for and live in 
God's glory. Everything was in place. Everything was perfect. Everything is good. And so we would expect, wouldn't we, that the next chapter will tell us about how this just spread all over the world. And the world was developed to the glory of God. And the world was filled with glorious image bearers. But we know that's not what's going to happen, right? We know what's going to happen in chapter 3. We're going to see the opposite. We're going to see Adam and Eve invoking the you shall surely die clause. We will see them saying not good to God's will. We will see man abdicating his responsibility. We will see woman taking over man's responsibility and office. We will see male and female abandoning their roles and their offices that God created them for. And how will we end up? We will end up naked and ashamed and hiding in conflict with each other and in conflict with God. That's where we end up. But that's not where we stay. We've got to fast forward again. We've got to fast forward to that moment in time and space where the last Adam is hanging on that tree of death and he is naked and exposed. And then he is put in the ground, in the garden, and he comes out on the resurrection Sunday and he has undone the fall. He has turned. Our shame into glory. Adam and Eve turned God's glory into shame. Jesus Christ turns it around and brings it back to where it's supposed to be. And so as he enters into heaven, the angels sing the words of Psalm 24. Open up you gates, lift up your heads. The king of glory is coming in. Who is the king of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? It is the last Adam. It is our savior, a human being who's finally back to where human beings were created to be. In the presence of God. And then we see Revelation chapter 1. We see our Lord Jesus Christ. The last Adam in his glorified state. John sees him in his vision. And how is he? He's shining and he's blazing with blinding glory. There in Gethsemane. The last Adam falls into the deep sleep of death. So that his bride can come to life. From his side come blood and water. And with the blood he washes away the sin of his bride. And with the water he sanctifies the Catholic church. The church of all times and places. Sanctifies for himself a church chosen unto everlasting life. And so when we turn to Revelation chapter 21. The last wedding in the Bible. We see that not only is creation faithfully built and developed with the gold and the precious stones and the glorious garden city totally covering the entire earth, but we also see the other part of the creation mandate. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We see in the consummation of all things a multitude which no man can number. Glorious, innumerable, multitude of God glorifiers. You see, the Lord Jesus saying, here am I and the children God has given me. It begins with a wedding which ended badly. But it ends with another wedding 
which will never end, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's sing, Come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen.